My name is Gladys. I'm an alcoholic. Gladys. Hi. Thank you, Genevieve, for your introduction. It's so strange to hear my daughter call me Gladys. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because a lot of people think that we look like sisters. She, she, called, uh, she called me out on it one time. She said, let's say that we're sisters, mom. And uh, I didn't like her. Not <laughs> it just doesn't, doesn't compute in my mind. <laughs> Yeah, so um, uh, I have a sobriety date of February 24th, 1999. I'm forever grateful for that. Uh, before I got to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not living anymore. I was just merely existing and I was not doing a good job of it. And uh, trouble was my constant companion. It's like trouble, meet more trouble, and then get more trouble, wind up in jail, get more trouble, wind up in that SIG, and get in more trouble. And uh, the deputies, I thought that they're supposed to be smart, right? I tell them, can't you guys see what's going on here? It's them, it's them. they're the problem. Why are you locking me down? They go, they call you by your last name there, and they would tell me, Perez, you're the problem. You know, and now today I realize they were telling me the truth. I was the problem. I was the, the constant denominator in all my problems. There I was. And uh, for me, alcoholism is a disease and it's a, a, it was a family disease for me. My uh, mom was a normal person. She never drank, she never had any habits. She never gave me uh, the example that it was okay to be drunk. And she never gave me the example it was okay to use any mind-altering substances. She was just a normie very Catholic, uh, she raised me as a good, she was Catholic, very extreme religious. And um, my stepfather was a drunk. He was a practicing alcoholic. And uh, he was a very scary person. And I remember fearing him. I would rather um, anything else happen than to get in trouble with him. So since, um, since school, um, I started elementary, I always felt different, always felt a part of, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. And I um, wouldn't speak, because he would tell us, he would tell us this. I mean, what dad tells you, children are supposed to be seen, not heard. And I have that extreme personality that I took that in and ran with it. You know, I figured that I don't have to talk, that's pretty cool. I'll just go through life, you know, and I was like a robot. I go to school, get good grades, and um, my trouble didn't start till later because I didn't like the way I felt. I felt like I was trapped in my body, and I didn't know how to, you know, use my words. You know, I always held them in. I became very good at stuffing my feelings. You know, if something bothered me, I wouldn't tell nobody about it. I would just stuff it in real deep and where nobody knew what was going on with me. And I remember some days I would kiss my mom on the cheek and say, bye mom, I'm going to school. And I wouldn't utter a word. I'd go through school, I'd come back, go through my classes, I'd take the school bus home. And um, the next words were, hi mom, I'm home. So I never learned how to uh, properly grow up. And um, when I turned 16, I remember I had an older brother. We were a family, big, big family, and I have an older brother. And my older brother was always in trouble. And <laughs> my dad had kicked him out of the house really early. 
and he uh, wind up getting himself into into YA. Uh, I mean, first it was started with Juno Hall, then it would would go to teen um, problems such as YA holding uh, halls and things of that nature. And I remember feeling really not okay with that. I didn't like the trouble that was befalling my older brother. And my stepfather used to hit my brothers a lot and he would not hit them in a, in a good way. And um, I remember when he would start the punishments, I would run, there was a field by my house, so I would run as far as I could so I wouldn't have to hear the screams. And then um, also, I knew better than to get in trouble with my stepfather because anytime I did anything that appeared, had the appearance of being wrong, he would, um, he would enforce punishments on us. He would line us all up from the littlest to the biggest, and he would use a leather belt and he would hit us on the behind with the, with the leather belt as hard as he could. And he used to work in the field, so he was very strong. I remember him that he used to drink Olympia, Olympia beer. This was way back in the early 70s. And the, he had a refrigerator dedicated to his Olympia beer. It was always stopped. And um, he would drink Olympia beers and he would smoke Allen M cigarettes. And I was curious as a kid when I was growing up, I remember wanting to know what the cigarettes were. So I would steal a package from my dad. And I would go and experience what a cigarette was. I go, I didn't see the, the attraction in it because the first cigarette I smoked, I coughed. And if I tried to take another hit, I coughed more and then I throw up, it was no fun. So then I uh, tried, um, I didn't like the beer, but every time my stepfather would tap on the top, he'd come home, he had a recliner, Lazy Boy, and he'd sit down and watch Western movies. And when his beer ran out, he would tap on the top of the, the can and one of us had to run and go get it. So my younger siblings, they wouldn't go for it, but I was always running. I'd be the one to run and get him his beer, crack it open and put it back on his holy cupping. And um, I remember growing up in a desert. It, it was in a, a city, a little town called Hopeville and it was in the Imperial Valley. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that area. It was, it was really hot. It was like 120, 125 with humidity of about 60 or 70%. And we didn't have AC because we were kind of like poor big family. So all we had was a water cooler. And um, it was really hot that day. And I went to crack open his beer. And I remember it was sweating and I was really thirsty and I had drank a lot of water that day and I wasn't quenching my thirst. And I grabbed that Olympia beer and I opened my throat and just swung it back. And as soon as it was gone, it was empty. He goes, hey, where's my beer? <laughs> so I, go, I cracked open another one and took it to him. And he goes, you like, you like beer? And I go, I'm not thirsty no more. And he goes, okay, you can drink all you want. So he convinced my mom that she should let us drink all we wanted. Because if we drank all we wanted, there would come a point where we wouldn't want to drink no more. He goes, I don't want you to turn out like me. So let, let her drink all the beer she wants, all the liquor she wants. And he wore her down until she did it. And I remember being a kid and being drunk at Taylor Park because I remember drinking a lot of beer. I remember even drinking the hard stuff. The hard stuff was a little bit hard to take, but I like the effects. It felt warm going down. 
And after a few of them, I feel like everything is okay. I don't, I, I love myself now. I love everybody around me. I think everybody is nice. And all of a sudden I felt like I fit in. So for me, it started with alcohol. When I got really honest with it, it started with alcohol, even though I didn't want to concede to my innermost self that I was alcoholic. And that was a root of my problems. And that's why I was getting in trouble. But when I think back, every time I drank, I didn't know what was going to happen as I grew up. After I turned 18, actually it started at 16, I, um, I found out that my, my brother, I came home, you know, from one of his prison, because later on it became prison, you know, he would go to four or five years, come home, do another four or five years and come home. One of those revolving doors, he had, we wind up having a really big house in the west side of Holtville, and that house had a big, big hallway, and my brother's room was the last door to the, no, it was the first door on the left, and mine was the last door to the right, and then all between was my brother's and sister's room and my parents' room. And um, he, my brother was gone all the time, so I went into his room, and I found in, in his closet, I opened it up, there was no clothes, but there was a lot of green stuff inside baggies, there were like five finger baggies, and they had a lot of stems and a lot of seeds in it, and it looked like a, oregano. So I started wondering, what is that stuff? There's got to be some attraction, right? So <laughs> I, I told my friend Cassandra that she lived in a neighbor city called El Centro, and uh, one time she was over, and Cassandra knew, would know what it was. She's cool. So I called her. I called her. I go, Cassandra, look, this is what I found. And I went on to explain to her. She goes, oh, I know what it is. Come on over. I'll, uh, and when I went over her house, which was a few doors down, her uh, uncles used to live there. She gave me an envelope. It's a really long envelope. She goes, go over to each one of those baggies, pull out a pinch out of each one, put it inside the envelope. And once the envelope fills up, make sure that you roll them back up, roll up those plastic baggies and lick them and make sure you put them exactly the way you found them. So I did so. And when I got there, Cassandra was really happy. I was wondering why she's so happy. <laughs> so I gave them to her and she goes, um, wait for me right here. So she comes back and she came back with um, papers. They were in a little package that had a man smoking a cigarette on the front. And she goes, let's go down the ravine. Down the ravine is like, nobody will go down there because it's a scary place. We're gonna go down there and I'm gonna show you what this is. You'll really like it. So we went down there and she proceeded to, to do the rolling. And they looked like, they came out looking like candies, really, really stuffy in the middle and really tight at the ends. <laughs> and they, she, they're really big. And then she put one in her mouth and she got the lighter and then she lit it up. And when she lit it up, I go, oh, it's a cigarette, you know? My dad smokes those. <laughs> so she goes, everything went pop, pop, pop. <laughs> she kept on smoking and then she started coughing, like really choking oh my God, that's bad. She goes, <clears throat> it's good, it's good, try <laughs> So I took that first hit. When I took that hit, everything changed. I felt like, okay, 
I felt like I like her. I like myself. I like the way this feels. So we went back up the ravine. It was like a canyon, but it was all dusty, a lot of plants and stuff. And when we went up the ravine, we were in the west side of Hopeville. And um, there was a Kager party and there was her relatives that, had, that were hosting the Kager. And I remember having really dry mouth. And I go, oh, that looks good. And she goes, come on, I'll ask my aunt for one. So she, she went up there. I still have a scar to this day on my, on my hand here because I put my hand up on the fence and I didn't have feeling. Everything was numb. And I, I leaned on it and I scraped my skin off and I go, oh, not good. And I was laughing. <laughs> and then, so we sat down and when we sat down around the Kager, I had a sweater on and it was really hot. And she goes, what are you doing with your sweater on? And I had pants, jeans, long jeans. And she goes, I go, I don't know. It is hot, isn't it? <laughs> so I took the sweater off and I had belt marks. The reason I had the belt marks on my arms and my legs was because my stepfather would line us up to hit, hit us with the belt. Everybody would, would submit. All my brothers and sisters would submit. When they came down to, up to me, because I was one of the tallest, I was one of the taller kids, I was the firstborn daughter. And my older brother was always gone. Well, I would not submit. When, when he wanted to hit me with the belt, I would start screaming at him and telling him, you're not gonna hit me. I'm not, you're not my father, you know? And uh, he would hit me anyways. And I would throw myself on the floor and into the fetal position and I would get it on my legs and my hands. And all the while I was yelling at him, you're not gonna hit me, you're not my father. And um, I remember the belt would tear into my skin my legs, it would just rip into my legs and it would just rip into my arms. And the more it hurt, the more I would yell at him that you're not my father. And I look at my mom like, you know, as kids, you don't know that it's really not your mom's fault. <laughs> and I didn't understand what was going on. I thought everybody got beat that way. Maybe there was something wrong with me. Why wouldn't I submit? But later on, I realized that the reason that I wouldn't submit is because don't you know who I am? You know, I always had that attitude from the, from the very beginning of time that I can remember. And um, well, back to when I was sitting around the Kager and I took my sweater off. I took it off because my inhibitions were lower. I had a few drinks under me already and the pod really changed the way I felt where everything was funny. And when I took off the sweater and her, Cassandra's um, aunt goes, oh my God, guys, who did that to you? And I go, my dad, he should, don't worry, he should see my legs. He does it all the time. I thought that everybody got beat like that. And uh, another thing that happened to me too that, that stands out in my memory was I was a kid growing up. Um, I was in junior high at this time and um, they would have us dress out in my PE uniform with shorts and a striped black and, I mean, white and blue stripes. And I wouldn't dress out because I was so embarrassed that people would see my legs that I wouldn't dress out. So I take a nap for the day instead of having to dress out. And I didn't want those people to see me. And um, there came a time where she, my PE teacher goes, if you don't dress out today, we're gonna send you home and you're gonna get suspended. And I was more afraid of my dad than it was of, you know, of the teacher and the people seeing my welts on my legs. 
So I dressed out that day. And that was a pivotal moment in my childhood that when I walked out, dressed out for PE, that they saw, they saw who I was and they saw what was going on with me. And I remember not crying. I wasn't crying, I was just petrified. I remember thinking everything stood still, the world stood still. And I felt like open up dirt, swallow me whole. I don't wanna, I don't wanna be me right now. I wouldn't be anybody else but me. I remember I was petrified. I never forget. It's like time stood still, and it was just me, the teacher, and the, and the children that were staring at me. And I don't remember what happened after that. I blacked it out, and um, I just went on with my life. But when I turned 16 and I tried that first joint, what happened was it changed the way I felt, and I fell in love with it. And I fast forward because I, I got on that marijuana maintenance program for the next 20 years, and I was making loaded decisions. I didn't drink because I didn't like the effects anymore. I was making me sick a lot, but I didn't have that problem with the other stuff, but the green didn't do that. So if my eyes were open, I was loaded. And I became making, making uh, getting involved with men I would never have gotten involved with if I was sober. And I wound up being a single mom with three kids. And I was living in the city of Oceanside. And I had this one sister that no matter what geographical I make in my life, that sister's there. She's living down the block, you know? And um, I remember one time I was living in Oceanside and I couldn't get a hold of any green, nobody had it. The, the city went dry and all the cholos, you know, I was really good at communicating with cholos. Would, they're really easy. I would just tell them, hey, like, here's a tip, you know, give me that. You know, and they knew what I wanted. They always would come up with that. And um, one day I, I went up to them with a 20 and I asked for some green and they go, they gave me a little baggie that was white. And I knew what it was right away, even though I never had it. I go, I'm not no doggy. Give me my money back. I, I'm not gonna use that stuff. And I thought, why are they so dumb? They know what I want. And what happened was nobody had it. So I called my sister down the street. I call her on the phone. She was really popular. She was really beautiful. She had big green eyes. They used to call her uh, cat eyes at school. And uh, she goes, come on over, Gladys. I, I could go down the alley and get you some. So I went over her house. I, I remember I put my son in his stroller. And then I had my daughter that was like, nine, 11, something like that, maybe eight. Yeah, she was about eight years old. And my other daughter, I got her with this hand and then um, I would put their hands on the stroller and push it, push my son to my sister's house. So when I get there, my sister does not do what I want her to do. I gave her the 20, she, she said she'll be right back. She went down the alleyway. When she came back, she had the same stuff that Cholos were trying to give me, but she had the glass on the other and I got so mad I remember going through emotions at that time I remember first emotion was anger like you you're a traitor you told me one thing you come with another and the second thought was like I don't want to go home sober I don't have the next one I would do anything for the next one and um so she looks at me she has a big old smile on her face and she goes, try it, guys. You like it. If you like art, you really like this. 
And um, I looked at her and you know, my sister always looked really pretty and she, did, she didn't remind me of those girls in the, in the how was it called, ghetto? Because we lived in the ghetto of Oceanside. She didn't look like those girls that were in the ghetto that were, had lost their kids, were walking around with ripped up pants before they were ripped up pants were a thing. And um, <laughs> they had lost their kids and they were walking the streets and they were druggies. And I didn't want to be that. You know, I did not want to be that. So whatever it was they were doing, I didn't want any part of it. But my sister was very well-to-do and her, she didn't lose her kids. She had her kids, she had an apartment and she wasn't walking the streets. So I go, made that one bad decision that took me down a very, very dark path. So that stuff is wicked. And I know this is the AA meeting, but it's part of my story. So I always touch on it. And I made that bad decision. And um, after that, it became very necessary. And she was right, I liked it. And I liked it more than other stuff. I had a lot of energy. I didn't eat all the time, so I was okay with my weight. And I had a lot of energy to deal with my kids when they cry, when I had to go uh, check the mailbox, I was okay. And it, it, everything revolved around that. And so what happened in a very short time span, I first, I lost my, my apartment. I, I was dragging my kids through the motel scene with me and uh, I lost my kids to the system. And that was very painful. Okay, so that stuff let me down. As soon as I lost my kids, I lost everything, I had nothing, it stopped working, no matter how much. It's like I had a big gaping hole in the, hole, in the pit of my stomach that I couldn't fill with anything, no matter what I throw in there. I could throw all the dopey wanted, I could throw all, everything, all the, because I started drinking at that point, because I couldn't handle, handle the pain. I couldn't understand how I went from the person I was to a person I didn't recognize anymore that would do anything for the next one. I did things that I swore I never would do. And I did them better than those girls. And I wasn't getting into jail or anything. I, I, I ran a month in the city of Oceanside for two straight years. And there was always this one black cop and white cop. They were on a straight mission to save me from myself. And I didn't realize that at the time, I thought they had a problem. Why can't they just leave me alone? Because they know who I am. You know, so anyways, that white cop, black cop were constantly after me. Finally, one time they caught me because they were better at it than I was. I fought the, they fought the good fight of faith and they got me. And when they got me, it was because I had prayed. I remember one night feeling that I had nothing to live for anymore and I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing and nothing was okay. And uh, there was a lot of suffering I did through the middle. And like the, the book says that we cannot profoundly remember how bad it was the suffering one day out there. We cannot remember it. And that's why a lot of people relapsed. I didn't relapse because I got those last three months out there with nothing but sheer suffering and pain. And uh, when they caught me, I remember I had prayed to God, God, please help me. I know you're out there, whatever it takes. Help me. I swear i never do it again. And when they came for me, I, I go, oh God, that's not what I meant. <laughs> this is not what I meant. I, this is not the help I wanted, you know? And um, everything I had inside my body, I remember they caught me in, in this, this really 
nasty bar. I shouldn't be hanging out uh, anyways. And I would proceed to drink myself into stupors. I was a blackout drunk, you know, because the other stuff wasn't working. So I would drink tequilas, straight shots. And I, at this point, I was in so much pain. 13 straight shots, no chasers. And then uh, mudslides. I used to do um, mudslides. Those were my alcohol of choice. Just a little bit of milk and a lot of glue. And I had drank 19 of those. And I know because there's always an alcoholic out there that's, I don't know if you guys can relate when you're drinking and you have buddies. There's that one that's counting your drinks because you can't believe you can drink them more, you could drink more than them. And he had counted them. He goes, do you know that you had 19 mudslides and, and 13 tequila shots? How are you still standing? And um, I go easy. I would go outside, the air would hit me and I would back out. I was just a blackout drinker. That's what I would drink for. I would drink to forget my name. I would drink to forget the pain of how my life became nothing like that. And that I was doing things I swore I never would do. And uh, so I wound up in jail. And when I wound up in jail, I got the program of AA coming in and doing panels, H and I. And I heard some ladies in there that had done the same things I did, that had torn their life apart, just like I had that had done the same awful things I had done to my kids and that were, they, they showed me that they had what I wanted, was that light in their eyes and that innermost feeling that I'm okay with me today, you know? And um, when I heard the story of the Sea God Planet and I started thinking, there is a way out for me. And then when I was in jail, I found a book and it was a, a basic text for NA. And it says, uh, if you're an addict and you found this book, give yourself a break and read it. Once an addict, always an addict is a lie. There is recovery. And then I found in the story from AA. I, I did six months in jail, not knowing what's gonna happen to me. I remember praying to God, the same God that I would do those foxhole prayers to. And I said, God, get me out of this one. And I swear I'll never do it again. So, um, I, I got to see the judge finally after six months. Before that, it was all dry runs. And the girls that would go with me to go see the judge all got to go out to programs. They were all white. I know this is, we don't see black and white. We don't see, you know, yellow here. We just see humans. Alcoholism is only a human disease. And, um, these girls were being released to programs and I thought to myself, I want a program. After six months and I'd say anybody would. So I said, God, I need that. And the judge told me, you either do a six month live in rehab, report back to me, stay out, of, stay out of trouble or go to prison for a year straight. I don't know about you guys, but prison scared me straight. I didn't like jail and I didn't like that and I definitely didn't want to see what prisons my brother was going to in his life. And um, they, they um, told me to do this or else. So that was my saving grace because I checked into the villa, a recovery home for women, which I didn't think was gonna work for me. How's that beautiful Victorian home? Eight groups a day, bunch of women and a staff telling me, breathing down my neck, telling me what to do. Eight groups and all they would do was the same readings, every group. And then the panels would come in and then I would hear their story. And then I started to get more faith. And at first it was just blind faith. But then after that, 
I started loving being sober more than I loved being loaded after I got my 30 days in the villa. I started thinking more clearly. And I remember crying one day and telling staff, I'm going to leave. And they said, what do you want to leave for? I go, because my kids just, I lost them. They, you know, they got adopted. I'm never going to get them back. And they go, you'll get your kids back. I'm here to attest to you that I was you. And I'm going home right now. My shift's over. And I'm going to go feed my, my kids. And you will too. But you have to go upstairs, hit your knees, give God your children. You're no good to your children. And he'll give them back to you when you're ready. But you got to get good for you, not for them. So I did just as she said, and as she said, I got my kids back. And um, my best thinking was when I got here, I'll do this 90-day program, and that's three months. I'll go do sober living for another three months, and that's six months for the judge. I just wanted out of trouble. And um, what happened was I did all 12 steps in those six months. I was doing steps with the girls. Thank you. I was doing steps with girls in the, in the um, sober living. And I remember we would sit down, three girls at a time, we would hold hands. We would do the serenity prayer starting with us and we. And I would take them through the first three steps. And then I would do four and five with each girl individually. And then we would get together again in groups and do six, seven, and eight. And then after six, seven, and eight, we do nine, 10, and eight, 11, 12. And I would take them all through the steps. And I got this spiritual awakening of a different variety that made me okay with everything, with me, with you, with everyone. And I became this different person that I didn't even know anymore, but I liked her. You know, I, I grew to love me. And the reason why is because I got this sponsor that would see through me. And she would tell me, Gladys, when she would see that I was like, not okay with me. She would tell me, look in the mirror yourself for 30 days and tell yourself, I love you. It was painful. I did it for a whole month. But then after that month, I really started loving me. After I loved me, I was able to love you, you, everyone. And the more I did this program, the more I loved myself. And um, I remember walking into the villa the first day when I walked in there. And there was Miss B there. Miss B had a... She, she earned it, you know, she was really good at what she did. And uh, she looked at me, she took one look into my eyes and she said, Gladys, you're gonna be one of the ones that's gonna make it. You are, you're gonna make it. I could see it in your eyes. And when I looked into her eyes, I believed her. I never believed anybody in any word they would say, but I believed her. And uh, today I sit on the board of directors of that house. Um, ever since I've been of service to that house, ever since I've been sober, I always, fill up my car. I would go back, fill up my car with uh, newcomers. I take them to meetings. I would show them a good time. I would buy their coffee. I would do everything they wanted. You know, what I would have wanted somebody to do for me. When I was going through the villa, they, I remember this lady, she would take us to meetings. I was so grateful she would take us to meetings. She wouldn't let us play the radio. She would, <laughs> she would sit us down and she would, she would treat us like soldiers, you know. And I remember being so grateful that she would show up that she would take us to meetings. But when I took the girls out to meetings, I take them to Starbucks, I take them and get them, uh, show them a good time. And then before they have to go in before their curfew, I would drive my Mercedes around the park and play music for them because they didn't play music when they were there. And they were so grateful 
they would tell me thank you a hundred times. And if they didn't tell me a hundred times, it wasn't enough for them. And when I would go show up again to be a service for them, they would draw beautiful flowers and sign their names and tell me how much I meant to them. And I don't know about you guys, but that made me feel so good, I almost cried. And um, today I have a good life, I have my kids back. My mom was instrumental because I would have lost my kids, but she stepped in and she took my kids for me. And she told me the reason I do that for you, Gladys, is because I know you're gonna stay sober. You would stay sober without it. But if you lost your kids, you would never ever achieve true happiness. I'll give your kids back, you know, when you're ready. And um, for that, I'm forever grateful for my mom too. And I know it's God because God did for me what I can do for myself. I was in so much trouble when I got here, I was in trouble with the INS and they told me, we want you out of the country. I, I went to war with the INS, with God, with my sponsor, with you guys and my fellowship because I follow my sponsor's directions. She said, you go to meetings, you tell those people, you tell our people what's, what's going on with you and they are gonna come up and they are gonna help you. And by the way, you need to get yourself an immigration attorney and you need a pony up the dough and you need to, you need to fight them. And uh, I remember going to NA meetings and sharing about what was going on with me. I remember this business owner came up to me and he goes, the INS wants you out of the country? I go, yeah. And then he goes, no effing way. <laughs> he wrote me a letter. He wrote me a letter uh, cleaning my case. And he put the, the seal of his business on the letter and his number and everything in this email saying why they should not take me out of there. Because if they did, a lot of American girls would not stay sober. My sponsee, I remember the sponsee that she was about six feet tall. She could not stay sober when I was in sober living. And she was on a third strike. And my house manager went and picked her up from a hotel where she was gonna go on to the bitter end. And she picked her up and she brought her home. And I remember thanking my, my uh, house manager. Thank you, Timmy, thank you, thank you for bringing her home. I love Destiny, I love her. And Destiny asked me to sponsor her and Destiny is sober today. She has a beautiful girl, she's married and she didn't go back to prison. And that's because me and her sat down and worked the steps. What was Destiny's problem is that she couldn't concede that there is a God. She was atheist all the way. But I told her, Destiny, do you believe that I believe there's a God? She goes, yes, I could see it in your eyes. And then I go, do you believe that it's God who keeps me sober? And she goes, yes. At that time, I had it like 10 years and she goes, yes. And um, no, I'm lying, it's about five years, three years, because I was sober living for three years. But um, those, those three months that I was supposed to do sober living turned into three years, because I was fighting that INS case. But you know, I have gone to war also, with uh, social services who wanted to take my little paycheck because my kids were in the system and uh, they didn't want to go after the dad because they couldn't find them. But anyways, I took them to, to um, I went to war with them in, in, in the court system. I did the, applied the same thing, people in AA. I got myself an attorney. I got myself up there and fought them. And they said, when she was in uh, a recovery, which is, She's still there three years. 
she's considered disabled. She can't take her money. And I won. I won the INS that had me in for three orders of deportation. Each one I got a each two of them I got a temporary stay. The last one I got a, a pardon for the federal government. So that's the power of AA. My sponsor will always tell me, you put AA first, everything else falls. And the reason that I stayed, you guys, was because I love being sober. And the reason that I don't go out is because I know that if I do one of anything, whether it be a drink or anything of any nature, I'm gonna become that person I was before I got here. I do not ever wanna feel the way I felt before I got here. I was a POS when I got here. I was the loser walking down the street. I lost your kids when I got here. And I'll never want to feel that way again. Thank you for letting me show up.